Welcome back. Once again, not Steve Cuff. Uh, this is Adam Myros, and it's your uh, weekly optimism vaccine. Uh, we are in October, folks, and uh, those of you who've been listening for uh, any amount of time at all know that October is the time of year wherein we introduce uh, Sean Glynis to uh, some esteemed horror directors. Uh, you know, he's he's probably as, as well-versed as the rest of us at this stage, so it's, it's just kind of a Conceit. Kind of out, yeah, outdated itself at this point, right? Uh, yeah, you you had prob- presumably seen uh, more Sergio uh, Martino movies than I had going into this. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's a, it's a bit of a, a stretch at this stage. But nonetheless, that's the idea. And we are, in fact, talking Sergio Martino. And, uh, yeah, we, we are taking a look at three of his films, all in a two-year span here, because Italian... So we're doing directors. High School Girl, his incest porn movie. And then what were the other two? <laughs> Uh, Sean, I think you, you've backtracked back to, uh, last oh. year, but <laughs> oh, shit. we've moved past Joe D'Amato. Um, yeah. So joining me today, of course, how could we do this series without Sean Glennis? Hello. I bring in the big energy for his yeah, special moment. Well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's nice to be here. I look forward to this. It's like I said, it's kind of, the conceit is, is here. It's kind of a, outgrown itself, but it's fun nonetheless to, have you guys pick something for me to dive into? It just gives me a project as uh, as the as the weather changes and things get a little spookier. Um, and uh, this year, I think is a couple couple interesting. I haven't really dug in too far in the next one, but uh, for Martino, I think we have a lot to talk about whether. He's going to blow anybody's socks off. Um, maybe he will, maybe he won't. But um, I think I think he at least gives us a lot to talk about. Definitely, definitely. He's, he's certainly a traditional Jalo director here. I, I wonder how we landed on him. Whose idea was Sergio? I think it was Steve Cuff. Steve Cuff. Because I'm, I'm surprised if we were going to go further down the Italian line, we still have not technically done Fulci, Fulci yet. Fulci, yeah. Have we done uh, Suave. Uh, or Baba. Argento's uh, protege, or yeah, Bava, his mentor. So, yeah, those are there's a lot of fruitful territory left in the Italian vein. I guess we can keep doing this for a few more years. Uh, also joining us this evening is Jake Tropila. How are you doing, Jake? Buongiorno. <laughs> doing fine, thank you, Adam. How are you? Oh, you know, it's it's been a weekend. Jake, you're what, like five, six hours behind over there in Italy? That's, ex- that's exactly right. Or it's it's, uh, it's a fourteen hours ahead. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's a morning. I will stop with this voice. <laughs> For the best. Thank you. You know, it, it yeah. is Italian film. We would probably just dub over you in a, right, right. a very American voice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's weird. Uh, I was while watching those, thinking while while watching these, which um, I think we might have watched different versions of some of them. Um, because I'm guessing you guys watched some of these on streaming channels, whereas I watched some of them on uh, disc where I chose, I had different options, but um, watching a lot of Italian movies. So basically I'll kind of just preface this whole uh, two part episode with just saying I've been, this has gotten me into a lot of uh, other Italian movies adjacent uh, in this seventies and 80s but um some of the names that you mentioned uh previously like fulci and uh lenzi uh umberto lenzi who's who's a lot like martino type of character but um just watching a lot of dubbed movies i i i stopped uh thinking about what the accents are of the dubbed people like it kind of takes on its own characteristic in a way um like one of the films that we're going to talk about, uh, maybe even the first one, um, takes place in London and the voices are dubbed in English accents. And I didn't realize it until, uh, I heard somebody point it out. Um, but yeah, this is, I, I really 
I really like the dub voices. I don't know if there's some sort of like purist sentiment about what you sh- what you know they ideally like, but I mean the dubbing was so good or so proficient that um, uh, frankly it just makes it easier to watch uh, if it if it's dubbed. But I don't know. Do you guys have opinions on that? Well, I think it's kind of hard to take like a purist tact when it's not shot for sound. You know, it's, like, right. it's all it's all fucking dubbed. It doesn't matter. Why not listen to it in the the dub that was done for your yeah. own uh, audience? You know. Yeah. Typically, I like to lean towards the uh, the director's original intentions. So, if there is actually a version that is dubbed and out on Blu-ray and preferred, or that's how it was shot with the intention to be dubbed in English, then yeah, I'll usually stick with that one. Um, is that's 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 generally how I see it. I'm not going to go out of my way to watch something that was uh I don't know, dubbed poorly by a company that didn't give a shit. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Italian film is its own beast in that respect because it's like the, you know, they're releasing freaking five tracks with the original film for the most part. It's, uh but yeah, let's let's start with uh, the very beginning here. And this is probably the most famous of the bunch and uh also for my money the best. Uh we have a very interesting film called The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. Sean, what is what yeah. is The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward? Um it's not necessarily about a, a woman with strange vices. <laughs> um <laughs> Well, in the seventies, you know, that there was a different definition for sure. what constituted a vice press. Oh, uh, well, so it's about um, Mrs. Ward. So she's a, a wife uh, to this uh, important figure, uh, and they it, it, do they come back to town? I feel like they they come back from somewhere, and they're sort of like reuniting with with people at this party. Anyway, um, yeah. Uh, she, yeah, she's yeah, she's just out of this relationship with an abusive ex, and she's mm-hmm. now with a uh, a guy. He's a diplomat, so he's conveniently overseas for a lot of the time the film is taking place. And she reunites with a friend who introduces her to another friend played by uh, George Hilton, who will appear in all the films we're discussing this evening. Yeah, and uh, so. George Hilton is in this. I, I think um, all of them have. Do all of them have uh, Edwig Fennec as well? Uh, two of the three. I believe she is not in Case of the Scorpion's Tale. Correct. That's right. She was not able to be in that. I don't think it was any sort of like, uh, I think it was just like logistics. But um, so George Hilton in uh, three, all three of them, I think. Um, yes. yeah. And then Ivan Rasimov is in two of them. Um, so uh, this is Martino... This is his first Jalo, and uh, it's really kind of besides some like documentary stuff. Um, it's his first. It's his. It's his second uh, fictional feature. He did this spaghetti western, um, Arizona Colt Returns, which is uh, a sequel, as the name would imply. And it's uh, it's fine. It's not very good, honestly. But um, so this is like him really jumping into something that is his own, even though the Jalo is, is an established thing. And um, so this is in 1971. And if you're not familiar, the Jalo was kind of uh, birthed and was sort of, um, you know, uh, being developed in the 60s uh, after Baba. But uh, this like 1970 to 1975 period was like really like the big, the big Jalo um, uh camping grounds uh, a lot of the classics came out of it and um all of the ones that we're going to talk about are uh on, on this episode um actually on both episodes uh are, are like five of the big names of, of, of jalos but um so he starts this out with a uh, strange vice and yeah it, it's uh it's about this woman who's who's being chased by a serial killer which is the Jalo, um, the Jalo is, uh, you know, you got this uh, guy in black gloves and a knife usually or something of that uh, sort, um, chasing after a woman or chasing after multiple women and, and killing them. And then you kind of have like this um, amateur detective, sometimes a wife, sometimes a friend, whatever, or, or sometimes the husband or, or a friend um, who's trying to figure it out outside of the usual 
uh, avenues. Like, you know, they had a police genre in Italy that kind of dealt with that um, crime world and, and the specific uh, agencies. But the Jalo was all about having this amateur detective try and figure this out adjacent to the woman being chased. Um, and uh, Edwick Fennec, uh she has this... She's got these big eyes and this kind of, she kind of has like a mannequin look like this, this oddly like milky skin. And she's kind of just like looks almost plastic. And, um, uh, it's, it gives a very, uh, strange, strange feeling, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that this is probably a little stranger than some of the Jalos, and you know we'll talk about one in a bit that kind of maybe is a bit more uh straightforward but but Martino does some really cool stuff in the opening here where uh first we we see the, like some flashbacks and it and it gets uh very kind of dreamy and uh you kind of see like this relationship that Jake was talking about with this ex, and you know they had this sadistic relationship and you can't always see the line like there's a lot of like sexual perverse uh relationships happening in these jalos and, and this one is really kind of cementing that it's a very uh, sadomasochistic relationship like yeah. they would get, drive out of the woods and he would just strip her clothes off and beat her with a belt and all throughout these sequences this amazing score by nora olandi is playing and adam mm-hmm. if you could if you could be so kindly to drop that in right here sure will Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's 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 really cool. Like uh, th- that scene where where they're in the woods and stripping down. It kind of like blew me away right right off the bat. Um, oh just, yeah, it's like the rain pouring down, and there's this beautiful shot of them in the background and in, in the car, like just the huge beads of rain hitting the car, and it's just kind of like really blows you away. Yeah, uh, this movie. I, that's the stuff that makes this movie really stand out for me right. from from the Jalo genre standards. You know, this is it's its own thing in a way because it almost brings this sort of erotic energy that you'd see more outside of Italian horror of the era, like you know, like you covered last year with Jean Roland. It's got this very ethereal eroticism to it, and that is. Mm-hmm. It is. It it really exceeds at that. Like that. That is where this film really just mm-hmm. becomes elevated. And it is like the best work of Argento or someone like that too. Just sort of 
masterfully aided by this score and it is really haunting stuff and i i was really taken with this film from top to bottom even though it is very much it sort of devolves into that dinosaur detective novel that a lot of jello tends to but um yeah it, it's a really fun movie and it's a really i i don't know i've not quite seen these two types of horror blended quite quite in this way i suppose if anything it reminds me sort of a little of deep red but uh it's it's its own animal too uh yeah and you can see a lot of influence that that's one of the things that stood out to me here is like you can tell like tarantino likes this movie oh yeah oh yeah like the score is actually reused in kill bill i didn't realize that but mm -hmm. uh he seems to be an important figure like martino so martino who's still alive um he seems to be taught he seems to to name drop Tarantino in like every interview and talking about um, uh, the pieces that I kind of put together. I I don't have any sort of like empirical evidence of this, but um, that Tarantino might've been an important figure for, um, you know, making some of these movies uh, as popular as they are. Um, Like he would just talk to him about these editing sequences that Martino didn't even remember and just how much he adored them and obviously the music, but um, and you talked about sort of this blending of, of, of genres and that seems to be like, that's, that's what's so cool to Jalo stuff to me. It just seems to be pulling from all of these different things, um, like the paperback stuff before it. And, um, also like, you know, the Jalo was happening in defiance of television or like in, in trying to establish itself in ways that television couldn't. So it it was doing all of these like sexual uh, and violent things as a way to be like, look, you can't get this stuff on your television. Um, it's funny. Mar- I, I heard Martino say a couple of times that they would go above and beyond and shoot some um, stuff that they just knew was going to get cut, you know, because like the censors would say like, okay, well, we're going to cut this much. And then they, end up leaving some of the stuff in um mm-hmm. that they probably wouldn't have without that more gratuitous stuff and uh i think now that they're being that some of these are coming out in blu-ray in more full versions martino said that like some of those scenes they didn't really try that hard on because they didn't mm-hmm. think that they were ever going to be seen um but but it, i think it's important to as you're watching jalos to know that yeah these are these are happening um and being being made with the thought process that uh, they do have to define themselves against television. So there's like these certain restraints um, that are being put on it that they, they sometimes the best of uh, flourish. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, it is interesting to look at Jowl like in conjunction with television. Like it is just this, like if you stripped the violence and sex out of a film like this, it could be a fucking episode of Columbo or something. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Like that's just the the formula they follow for these things. It is, it's a lot of fun still. But I, yeah, well, a lot of it comes from the scenery stuff, you know. Like, and we'll get to to uh, this more as we watch more of them. But just like some of them, I, I think all three of these movies take place in different countries. I think, um, and uh, that's part yeah. of it too. It's just seeing this like these seaside and this one's largely in Vienna. Yeah. Um, I kind of get some of them confused, but yeah, one of them takes place in Vienna. One, one of them takes place in London. Another one takes place in Greece. Um, and for different reasons themselves, but, um, it's just, that's another part of, of the Jalo that makes them less episodic. Like TV is just getting these beautiful backdrops sometimes. Mm-hmm. And the, the visual language of this film is very influential. You see a lot of that snap zoom stuff that again, Tarantino, the, the stupid, yeah. The stupid uh, gif of DiCaprio, like, giving the cheers in Django. There's, like, that exact shot in this fucking movie yeah. with uh, Jean at the party. I'm like, huh. Yeah. yeah. Not that that's a shocking knowledge that Tarantino would borrow shots, but it, I didn't necessarily expect to see it here. Yeah. And the other the other big American influence is uh, Tarantino's shitty lackey, uh is you will see uh, Fennec pop up in uh, Hostel Part 2. <laughs> oh, really? Eli Roth joint. That's probably her most famous American performance. Yeah. Apparently, Fennec... Um, it's strange. So, one of the one of the discs of, of these... Um, I think it's Strange Vice. Yeah, yeah, for this one. Um, 
there's like archival Fennec interviews, which are really fun to watch. Um, because apparently she doesn't like to talk about this 70s Jalo work that she did. And she also did some sex comedies with Martino, and which again is um, a lot of these Italian Jalo directors were also making like creature features and sex comedies and westerns all like just concurrently, which is just incredible. But um, uh, Fennec, uh, I, well, first of all, she was Sergio Martino's brother's partner for 10 years, Lucio Martino, who was like his uh, producer, um, like lifelong producer. Uh, and that was kind of how a lot of these movies uh, got made uh, so easily for, for Sergio. But um, which adds another strange characteristic to watching these knowing that he's this is his sister-in-law that's like just nude for like large portions um <laughs> that he's directing and oftentimes just making her do some some pretty rough stuff um just physically um you know painful type of stuff but um it, it adds another character but um she apparently just doesn't think like think very fondly of the experiences um but some of these archival stuff uh were really worth watching if you can find um uh them anywhere and apparently because she was willing to like she got a lot of work because she was willing to do nude more than other people's but she was discovered by sergio's brother so mm. um it, this is kind of uh another thing like we're talking about the blending of genres but also there's so many collaborators that make these films work like uh fennec is like she's the face of so much of this obviously mm -hmm. martino but then you have um you have orlando orlandi and um <clears throat> bruno nicolai and and goblin elsewhere and um you know ennio morricone and then all three films that we talked about today are all written by the same guy ernesto gastaldi so there's just like that, that's that's kind of there's an alchemy working you know I, obviously argento is known for very distinct points of views and maybe he maybe his personality uh kind of overshadows some of those collaborations in ways that sergio martino if we describe him and talk about his work is more of kind of like and i think this is kind of a pejorative that's been used but a journeyman but i think he's just like some of the i think this movie is a good example of like the best stuff that he can do but a lot of times and a lot of the other genres he's not doing fantastic stuff it's just all watchable which is you know in its own right an achievement sure sure and i mean don't undersell these films either i mean these are well no, made no. Oh, yeah yeah. yeah i guess i'm thinking more of like because i watched like 15 of his movies so far and there's just like you're just spanning so many you know the policio teshi and the western and and like I said, the creature feature stuff and then stuff in the eighties. That's like kind of noirish when he was, you know, not, you know, he made some stuff in America. Um, mm -hmm. and it's just cool. Like it's not, I wouldn't be like, you got to check this out, but you're watching it and you're like, this is fun. Yeah. What were um, you going to say, Jake? I was, well, yeah, a couple of things there just to add on the first about, uh, Edwig Finnick it being his uh, brother's partner, um, that's not exactly uncommon in Italian cinema and uh, Dracula 3d which this date is um, Dario <laughs> oh, Argento's <laughs> most recent finished film. He has his own daughter, Asia, uh, and I believe she's even in several of his other films in various states of undress oh, and murder. Sure. So, but um, also, I was, I was watching these films and thinking, because you said Journeyman, and I was wondering how I would, like, who I would compare uh, Sergio to, and I'm not sure I have an answer, but I, I want to say he's, he's definitely more than just a, a craftsman because he's, mm -hmm. he's, he's quite skilled at what he does here. I just don't think he's, he's got that, like he's not a household name like Fulci or Argento, but um, it definitely he should be considered. Um, and I would like to highlight just a couple outstanding set pieces uh, in this film. Uh, I mean, the, yeah. op the opening murder, which is like practically ensconced in darkness uh, is just like this impressionistic slashing across a naked breast in a car. Uh, which is fantastic. And then there's this scene about midway through where uh, Edwig Fenech's friend is uh, in like this giant hedge maze uh, being stalked by the killer. And there's just this very 
gorgeous misty atmosphere to the entire sequence um it's it's like mm-hmm. just it's like genre catnip for me um right. one thing I, one thing i do have a question about that scene though uh, do you guys have any idea why the greensman was dressed like a, con- a general in the confederate army <laughs> <laughs> no but i mean like that kind of, I, I was thinking about this while you're talking about the like and and we'll, you know the ending is something we should tackle about this because there's a lot to discuss there but one of the things that that uh, Gastaldi, the, the the writer, and I've just heard other people talk about Jalos as like something like if you think about it in contrast to Hitchcock, uh, you know, who dealt with a lot of thrillers, obviously, um, like his modus operandi was logic, right? Like everything has to work, even if you don't know that it's working. He has to know that 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 there's a machine working clicking mm-hmm. and um sort of the freedom the liberty of of Jalos is that um they're not supernatural but they eschew logic in a way that opens them up for stuff that can just be more suggestive and um dreamlike is a little cliche but but you you get what i mean yeah there's just a certain look to Italian horror that is, it makes you say dreamlike. I don't know, just the exterior, something about the film stock they're using. Everything just yeah, the, looks the a specific the, way. Yeah, it's very oniric. Uh, I think probably my favorite uh, set piece in this film was the, it wasn't even a murder, I suppose. It was it was Jean's uh, faked death when they were exploring his house filled with animals that is just pitch dark with only a, a single match and it's just wonderfully lit yeah uh, and very organic sort of jump scare setups too like there to the point where it doesn't feel forced at all and this film does a lot of cliche stuff uh very well i would say like even the traditional whodunit element is uh, elevated here i would say i i certainly hadn't cracked the case and it, it sets you up kind of guessing between these three lovers as to who is the murderer and yeah, uh, yeah. The, the, uh, maybe I won't spoil the uh, reveal, but it, you won't uh, you won't see it coming. I'll, I'll say that it's it's very interesting, and I, <laughs> I really love the uh, the final bit where they get their comeuppance as well. Yeah, Gastaldi was like uh, said something about it's like I'm not sure it all makes sense. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> That's all right. It's, yeah, yeah, it exactly. just kind of keeps reinventing itself over and over. But uh, I just I love the how bonkers this movie ends. Uh, you know, I won't say mm-hmm. what happens, but just you you definitely will not. There is no way you will see any of it come <laughs> if you sit down and watch this. I guarantee it. So we should probably move on to this case of the Scorpion's Tale, which uh, sure. the same year, um, and uh, is probably a, a good one to come in the middle because I think that this is. Well, Myro said it could have been called Jalo, the Jalo, uh, um, which is, I guess, uh, a pejorative in you know calling it a bit of a generic Jalo. But um, I think it's important to think about it as you know also one of the first Jalo. So it, it's well, it may not have like the lasting set pieces and whatnot. It is cementing a, a, a style. Uh, in a way that I think is important. Uh, yeah, yeah. Jake, do you uh, want to g- dive in on Case of the Scorpion's Tale? Yeah. Um, well, I can't help but compare it to one of the proto-slashers of its time, uh, Psycho, especially in regards to a, a plot point that occurs relatively early on that uh, took me by surprise. But um, the Case of the Scorpion's Tale uh, concerns a woman uh, whose name I did not, uh, unfortunately, write down. Um, but her husband has just died in a horrific plane crash, um, and she's left with a uh, like a, a, an insurance policy was taken out, and she is now the recipient of a million dollars. And um, she's trying to cash this money out at a bank, but uh, there are several detectives and other leads going after her. Um, I don't know if, how spoiler-heavy we should get into this one, because... Um, just like Marion Crane in Psycho, she's actually killed like a half hour into the movie. And then it becomes a case of uh, who took this missing money. And there's uh, George Hilton plays, I believe he's a, an insurance investigator uh, looking mm-hmm. into the claim. 
but there's all these different people who had wanted her dead. There's another woman and her bodyguard who were familiar with her husband's dealings. But um, I, I, it's like a spin on Psycho. I think, yeah, this is this is my least favorite of the three, but I still think this is a great... I mean, this is just your great example of a giallo film. I mean, Adam said <laughs> it. It's, it's a giallo the giallo, but... I mean, when it's done really, when it's this well done, I I can't help yeah. but enjoy it a great deal. Um, so uh, this movie does not have this. I guess it sets up the third movie of the three because every time George Hilton shows up, with, looking like some kind of lunatic with his fucking inset eyes, like boring through you, you're like, okay, this guy's clearly the murderer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I called him Italian Christopher Lee because uh, he's just got this menacing look about. Him. Right, yeah, same when Christopher Lee shows up in a movie. You're like, well, I, he's evil, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, this movie does not, uh, you know, it, <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, uh, uh, George Hilton's evil. <laughs> yeah. I, I This was one that I kind of, um, I think it is uneven. Like, as much as I think it's just like a solid film, like I had a really good time with it, but but I had a good time with it as it developed. Like it wasn't just like top to bottom, like, like uh, the other two that we were talking about where it's just kind of like right from the get go, you kind of know you're getting into something cool. Like the beginning of, of Scorpion's Tale, I think is a bit dry and there's a lot of logistics that they're getting out of the way. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of like, Oh God, there's a lot of talking. I watched this one uh, subbed, not dubbed and um as as just kind of like all right, all right and then it it really gets going um once yeah uh you you got the uh the Hilton character uh really getting involved um and they they start traveling and um uh, there's just a lot of like beautiful shots in this that um uh, aren't really they're not in huge beats of the film but they're just like gorgeous stuff to look at that that reminds you that um how fruitful this italian 70s film industry was that just like just great people were working on every corner of the production um and which kind of again can go towards the case of this just being like uh, a generic version of the giallo um but that is a good thing and um yeah uh i don't know there's just a lot of cool stuff like the the apartment that they're in has um interesting looks to it which again is just a cool part of watching giallo is it's just like seeing like the artwork and the different colors in the in the um uh, in the interior design um there's there's just a lot of uh ornate stuff going on even if it's not always the most exciting and the most suggestive film yeah i there's i think also one thing that's going well for this is uh it's got like a very cool jazzy score um, which definitely adds a lot of energy. And there's a lot of just uh, a lot of like crazy like camera angles and tricks that uh, Martino is trying. Like one that stands out is um, when George Hilton is being interrogated by the police. It's like shot on an overhead angle and the camera is just swiveling back and forth on these two, uh, the, the police inspector and George Hilton. And it's like they're both like angled counterclockwise like 90 degrees counter and clockwise in like the wrong direction as, as it's just it looks strange but it's i i don't know it's kind of neat i like it um yeah it made me wonder how, like uh, watching a bunch of these kind of it, it made me wonder how much they cared about godard's 60s run mm -hmm. um just because a lot of the colors like and Lindsay is the same thing too but uh stuff like this where um it's just kind of like did you really like Pierre Lefou or is that just, just – did that just happen? You know what I mean? Yeah. A lot um, of Mediterranean scenery like in that film. Yeah, cool trick colors and, and, or yeah. color trickery and camera stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was just that I watched this one third of the three, but I was like, Jesus, another fucking movie about life insurance scams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keep up with this. Be sure to check out our uh, Deja Vu episode, or our, not our, our uh, Out of Time episode with uh, Denzel, if you haven't already, <laughs> audience. <laughs> yeah, all three of these movies are, are life insurance movies. Uh, yeah. Kind of interesting. I mean, obviously, it's it's a fertile ground for this sort of detective story. Uh, yeah, there's only so many places to get uh, somebody who's invested uh, and also not a you know, proper policeman. 
Yeah. Right. Although this one does have a lot more of a, a police element to it, I suppose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. This one for me, it, it's there. I didn't have a strong reaction to it at all. I. I it is a, a perfectly fine, well-made film. It's just. Uh, I don't know. There's nothing remarkable about it for me. It's just. Yeah. It's, it's there's there. no great set piece. Yeah. I would say I'd say the uh, the the home invasion attempt with the the bar yeah, over the wooden right. door is is fantastic. You're right, but it doesn't have like the ice on the lock type of thing. Yeah. You know, right? Like, yeah. Kind of outdone by what I just watched moments prior. You know? <laughs> Was that yeah. in Strange Vice? Yes. Okay, so in Strange Vice we didn't mention it, but um, yeah, one of the serial killers, you know, makes a kill, and uh, in order to make it look like a suicide, I believe. Um, sticks a piece of ice on a lock and so when it melts after he closed the door it locks back out and they go oh well how did somebody uh come and go um and i guess gastaldi said that he kind of uh that was the only thing anyone wanted to talk about after they watched that movie which is funny but um just to be able to come up with a little nugget like that um and unfortunately this this one doesn't quite have anything you know bit of magic to it and i I, this is the one i've watched uh the furthest away from this record and so it's a little uh pieces are fading um but but yeah i agree jake that home invasion is pretty cool stuff yeah i'm a fan of the the beer bottle kill too would make fulci proud (laughs) right in the eye that's the other thing I was going to – well, not Fulci, but Argento, like when I was watching those a couple of years ago, you're always kind of waiting for that awesome camera uh, thing, right? That trick that you're just like, holy shit, I've never seen anything like that before. Um, and just as a general statement, Martino is not going to do that for you, right? Yeah, it, he's yeah. he's definitely a part of the movement, a part of the industry. Uh, again, he is he is sort of a utilitarian director more so than – it feels like Argento kind of came to define and maybe even destroy the industry with his excess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, they're they're a bit of a different sort. One of them is definitely get is perhaps deserving, but certainly was uh, bestowed the auteur label and, and given the resources that came along mm-hmm. with that. Uh well, I don't really have anything else to say about Case of the Scorpion's Tail. So uh, let's. Uh, move right along to the third uh film here we have all the colors of the dark which is a full year later they really took their time making this one (laughs) uh sean what about it all the colors of the dark is um about a uh woman who has lost her unborn child uh and this one is pretty distinct uh you know it has all of the uh it's about a woman being terrorized of course by serial killer but it has a lot more elements um going for it it doesn't just have that serial killer with black gloves and the detective um (laughs) because she finds herself in a coven of satan worshipers um and the beauty of all the colors of the dark is that you're getting all of these different elements you're getting like this birthing or not yeah i guess like this birthing death dream sequence you're getting these coven sequences and and you're getting just like straightforward reality i guess and martino shoots them all the same um and so the beauty of of all the colors of the dark is that it's almost always moving between um states of reality and blending them together um and to two different means that we can talk about but uh basically we're dealing with this woman played by Fennec uh and her trauma and her continued terror um uh Martino said he was very influenced by uh uh Rosemary's Baby I can't remember the director of that one but I'm sure he was good <laughs> and um I think it was Cassavetes uh, oh yeah, yeah yeah that's right he did the Hitchcock thing where he always wanted to appear in his own movies yeah. um uh, but no, he was very taken with Rosemary's Baby, as were uh, many directors, and um, that that was a big influence. He also mentioned, for all three of these movies, that he was taken by um, Clouseau's uh, Diabolique and a real 
trial case, which I think also was a thing in a lot of other Jalos, was uh, kind of building off of a real, you know, murder case. I mean, obviously you got these screenwriters got to pump out, you know, however many scripts a year. Uh, they're probably looking to the headlines for stuff, but. Um, but all three of these movies that we talked on this episode uh, were drawing from Diabolique and uh, some case that Martina was really interested in. But um, yeah, All the Colors of the Dark takes place in London, which is a nice uh, change um, to see how Martino plays with that. Um, and uh, it's strange. It's very, you know, you get the foggy London stuff. You get the buildings. It, it's like you get what you want out of London, but it's also not super stereotypical, right? Yeah, this is much less of a traditional giallo, right? Yeah, this is almost like a half giallo. It's it's definitely kind of mm-hmm. straddling the line because it does have that sort of uh, supernatural element that it really yeah. doesn't, but it certainly alludes to it throughout the film. It's a film that does a wondrous job of obfuscating what is really happening and keeping you off kilter. Um, and it is, again, another of those films where you're just like kind of in awe of... <laughs> what they yeah. can pull off with film stock and just like sitting in a fucking public park. And you're like, why does this look so amazing? Yeah. It's funny you said that. Cause I had two words I wrote down are uh, abstraction and darkness. Um, because we open like John touched on it, this, uh, like kind of horrifying dream sequence, which is, looks like it was literally shot in a black void. And it's got a lot yeah. of uh, horrifying maternal imagery. Uh, it's a nightmare of Fennec, but then yeah, this he, he, Martino continues to have this sort of uh, is it real? Is it fake? Um, blend of reality and in in uh, dream throughout the film. Uh, there's this Fennec is being stalked by this figure who may or may not be a real person. He's got these striking blue eyes, and the and, him off. Yeah, he yeah exactly, which is also I think a callback from uh, Diabolique. Um, and uh yeah there's uh there's the coven of witches and and everything that uh martino does in this film he kind of shoots it very he's very claustrophobic um because mm-hmm. a lot of just it is just tight shots and like their elevator that goes up to their flat and the and yeah just a lot of a lot of limited space is this fennec is just kind of backed into a corner for most of the film as this nightmare surrounds her yeah it, it's um if we're talking about how uh it it's blending these different states of mind uh it seems he's martino seems to be uh suggesting that mm-hmm. what Fennec's character is going through her trauma like it almost it doesn't matter uh for someone going through that some that much trauma like what is real and what is not like what she's imagining what she isn't like it it's all really it's all the same at that point. Like, you know, when you're just living in that state of terror, it's no less valid that she's being haunted by these, you know, uh, horrific images than it is that somebody is actually coming after her or that she was in this coven and she, uh, kind of killed her friend. Um, yeah, it's, it's all just kind of like about the validity of feeling that way rather than, Oh, my mind's playing a trick on me. Sure, sure. Yeah, I. This is uh, an interesting one to me. It's for, I'm like, when you say it's inspired by a trial, I'm like, oh, you mean the trial of Charles Manson? <laughs> oh, right, right. Like, yeah, it, it's tried to say that late 20th century horror was sort of birthed by the Manson murders, but considering how informed this is by Rosemary's Baby, quite obviously, with the early scoring in the film and and sort of the tact it takes, uh, Fennec obviously channeling that performance, but um, yeah. It where it goes was very much reminiscent of I'm like okay this whole thing feels like it it really is sort of a meditation on the Manson murders but um yeah I, I don't know uh, maybe they had other inspiration but that's certainly how I read the film and I I I don't know I had mixed reactions to this one I think a lot of the stylistic choices here worked and a lot of them really did not for me in the way that. In Strange Vice of Ms. Ward, um, there's this driving score that really cements everything and marries the movie, really. And, you know, it evolves throughout the film to the point where, in the end, this 
odd Morricone sounding thing is like driven by these sort of dissonant drums and it, it just kind of goes off the rails as the film is escalating. And in, in here, I hate the music. In this film. I really, oh, really hate the music here. It's just this like boring psychedelic rock nonsense that it just sure. kills any atmosphere that this thing had for me. I, I I don't think it, I think it's probably my least favorite score, but might be my favorite movie of the bunch, just because I I think it does a, a, approach that abstracted quality and, and suggestiveness that uh, I really want out of these movies. I think, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I, and and just yeah, seeing what he does with just somebody walking through a park and or the close up of like boots on leaves, that stuff is just uh so cool um but yeah i don't know i'd agree it's just i guess i was frustrated by it in that i feel like it was just a step away from really being yeah, great for yeah. me. but it just yeah something about it i couldn't get sucked in I, it just kept taking me out of it at the wrong moments in, in various ways where a movie like this feels like if i had it on mute and wasn't paying attention i'd be like what 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 the hell is this it's so atmospheric and then when i put it on it never spirited me away like that you know i was just kind of like okay here's another this here's is, another goofy think, shot we we screwed another uh, green light bulb in here it's like okay <laughs> this and, and strange vice would be like perfect movies to just be playing at like a you know a cool dive bar like just without sound just that people could just look at uh and try to piece together <laughs> what is going on but um like Jake said, it's it's kind of claustrophobic, and the way he shoots, yeah, like staircases or Fennec at one point is just walking around this house that she has been taken into, and it's shot so so uh, beautifully, and all seems to be a lot of these trick shots that he's doing are just kind of like ornate shots that he's doing in interiors seem to all play into the like this you know eyeball format. You got this like tiny center that kind of develops. Uh, as you as you look out uh, from that center, um, but Fennec is just walking around, and and you know she comes across these hosts that uh, are no longer alive, and um, I don't know. There's there's a there's a quiet uh, beauty in some of this stuff that uh, it's hard to really get into exactly how it works, but um, uh, and same with the ending. There's there's like this really really great ending that again plays into a suggestiveness uh there it, it ends on a very ambiguous note that um rarely we get in jaws I, I think uh strange vice has it's not ambiguous but it's very cool um and a lot of them just don't have this extra sense of like i don't know dread that is discomforting yeah, on the way out. I won't. I won't spoil it, but yeah, I think I thought the ending, of the, like the final shot of this movie, just that freeze frame. The implications behind it are horrifying. Um, we haven't mentioned him yet, but George Hilton is also in this film. He's essentially the the second lead. He plays Edwig Finesh's partner, and she's you know gone through this horrifying ordeal and is suffering from postpartum depression. And his he's kind of he's kind of like a villain, even though he's not you know, doing anything outright evil. He's not really helping her. He's just kind of trying to numb her pain with just all these vitamins and pills he's throwing at her. So he's not, he's not a good cause of it either. And that's, that's, you know, echoed through the, the implications of the final shot. But, um, I I was, Adam said he didn't like the score and I was actually just sitting here struggling for the life of me to even recall any bit of music in this movie. Cause I think of the three that we watched, I, I was kind of wrestling between, this or Mrs. Ward as being my favorite. And I think now I have to give the edge to Mrs. Ward just because that, I, that score I can immediately recall. And I can't, I can't pick out anything from, from this movie, um, as, as much as I loved it, but yeah, uh, good stuff. Uh, nonetheless, just think of like the worst goblin tracks where they're just like doing like <laughs> prog jams that go nowhere. And they're just meandering all over town. Yeah, I can kind of visualize it in the like in the in the Coven sequences where she's drinking from the the vat of fox blood and everyone just starts partying around her. So I do I do the the tone of it would at least match those images. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah 
This one is real close for me. I think it's probably the strongest script of the bunch. I think it's a, a really well, yeah. I, I it's really well realized and yeah, the the writing is tight here. It's it's a very interesting idea they're exploring and yeah, it is among the better looking. I don't know. I think I'd probably still give the edge to uh, Mrs. Ward, but this is also a gorgeous film and. Uh, it's certainly worth your time. I just oh yeah, it's just it's just frustrating because I feel like it's it is really close to being uh, something really special, and for me, it's, it, it isn't. But yeah, this yeah. this does that neat trick I was talking about with Hilton, where he is in fact uh, at least part of Good. the plot of, of a cadre of murderers in the first two films, and and this one, considering how much this film evokes. Rosemary's baby and he's got this book on Satanism and it's him. So you're just like, well, <laughs> yep, <laughs> I see where this is headed. And yeah, no, he's, he's, he's a nice guy. He's a number one husband. Or is he? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, it's funny that, you know, you kind of talk about being um, maybe uh, thrown off or you don't love the, the, um, coven stuff and i was thinking about how much just personally i have grown in my taste for or just you know like omnivorous i guess taste for things um or like you know tolerance i guess is a better word that like that's stuff like prog rock and that like sort of yeah like folk horror slash satan witch stuff I that would just be like a disastrous combo for me um not too long ago um and it probably at the beginning of, of whenever this project started and uh that you know that would have just been something I could not be interested in and uh I yeah I I not only can I tolerate now but um it's something that I really enjoyed at least when it's done like this we'll see when I we'll see when I you know watch Yodorowsky movies again how much i <laughs> how much i've really grown in my taste it's it's interesting i don't hate it it's just i hate it here because i've seen him his movie scored in a different way that is much more effective for me and that that's why i, I probably struggle a little bit more with the prog stuff in italian horror because you've got these transcendent scores in these some of these films and then other of them are just like noodling bullshit right right it's, just, yeah. it's cool it's better probably when it's in like a joe d'amato movie when it's just like you're just trying to grab onto some substance it's certainly not eroding any atmosphere in your standard joe d'amato movie. <laughs> right right man i was really getting into that dirty butt now it's like just take it out of the moment oh uh, yeah. boy am i glad i missed those <laughs> Um, you, what you mentioned one thing, I think, uh, I would have to agree, Adam, that this is probably the strongest script, um, of the bunch. And I think this one more than the other two hits a really deep psychological nerve. Um, whereas the other films are kind of have more, I would say visual flourishes, uh, in how they're made. This one probably sacrifices those just so that it, it's, I don't know, the narrative is a bit tighter um so maybe there's a maybe there's a martino film out there that has like just the, the perfect balance of of like a strong script or and complete with like you know the great set pieces that we're we're hoping for um maybe it'll be in our next episode of martino yeah you'll have to see yeah. it for part two yeah we'll we'll have to see what yeah. else is in store yeah i'm interested yeah our next episode we're going to talk about vice and or torso and uh your vice is a lot key and only have the or whatever your vice is a locked room and only have the key uh which is mentioned in um yeah very strange that movie is based it, it was written based on a line in a note in the yeah. strange vice of mrs ward yeah uh again you know he's just just pounding these things out and he probably came across that line and was like "Ooh, i like that i think i'll use that again it, it was um, strange watching it because i'm like wait what the isn't that a movie <laughs> yeah 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 um i i'm i'm interested in, in those uh and to see what they have to offer um but i mean i would certainly uh suggest or, or recommend looking at other uh martino genres um 
I don't love the Policiotashi films. Like they're fine, but ultimately just not that satisfying. But um, I could see uh, this guy making a mean spaghetti western. Yeah, Manaha is um, definitely up there with the best of these three movies. Um, one one of the the yeah best I've seen of of him, and it's just got that great score. And even even that that first spaghetti western that he made that I mentioned, Arizona Cult Returns, has just like the most like the like this great intro, uh, Arizona Cult, like. Um, it's what's the word it's his song you know it's it's a tale about him in the opening credits it's just the coolest stuff and so i think as he as he was sharpening his tools through the through the the giallo um uh he he you know was able to make some really cool stuff elsewhere all right well i think that probably about wraps up part one here uh these are probably gonna be a little bit shorter episodes because uh as opposed to years prior we're splitting each director into two separate uh, ventures here. So you've got a whole other episode coming on old Sergio here. Um, so let's move on from there. Uh, let's do some putovers, guys. I uh, unfortunately have been wrestling with this computer so much. I haven't watched much other than Sergio Martino. So I suppose I'm just going to put over the good folks at Seagate for making an affordable and reliable hard drive <laughs> replacement for me. Uh, Sean, how you about you? Seagate, huh? Um, I, I I've watched a lot of good stuff, but one that um, was very striking to me was uh, a 2015 movie by Zhajanka called Mountains Made to Part. Um, this is a movie that I kind of had been just putting off for too long, and I didn't realize how great it was going to be. Um, it's uh, you know if you're familiar with with Zhajanka, you you kind of know what you're getting into. It's a, a movie about the developing uh, modern world of China and sort of that you know globalism changing it so rapidly and people seeing that change happen in their lifetime and uh, the way he just evokes that in different ways is quite gorgeous. But Mountains Made Apart split into three parts. Um, and, uh, it's just a very gorgeous moving picture. Sounds whether the, whether the mountains, you know, depart or not, I will not spoil. Uh, I'm going to guess no. Uh, (laughs) Jake, what are you going to put over? Yeah. Um, so I was thinking back, there hasn't been, I've been revisiting a bunch of Bond films. Um, so I, you know, you can check out, uh, you know, the four your ears only podcast on this network, but, uh, to put over something else different, um, I watched this film on Amazon Prime earlier this month, uh, or early in September, rather, called The Vast of Night. Um, it, it's set up as a uh, like an offshoot of a, of a Twilight Zone-esque story. It's kind of like the, the narrative wraparound is that it's set in this fictional television series, and it's, it's set in the 50s in, uh, I think, Albuquerque, New Mexico. But um, basically, it's this... Uh, it's these two high school kids. One of them runs the local uh, radio booth. Another one, she's uh, one of like the call. She's a call center girl who's patching lines in, and uh, it's uh, it's fantastic. Uh, I don't really want to say too much about it, other than that it's like one of the most lived-in period uh, sci-fi movies um, I've seen in quite some time. It reminded me a lot of uh, Ty West's The House of the Devil, which um, has a it, it very much a, a like uh, it's it's you know shot in modern day but it looks very much like it's of the period so like the director obviously did his homework um but uh yeah if you want a little indie film about uh about some cool shit uh check out vast of night on amazon prime it's only like 86 minutes or so too well see uh, you've got 86 minutes unless your yeah. computer explodes and then you may not um <laughs> Or you're a single parent and um, you got to commute to work and uh, the only time you have, you commit to listening to podcasts. Uh, in which case, you should definitely subscribe to the Patreon still. Right, yeah. You know, I mean, in, in such a scenario, I'm sure you just uh, ask yourself every night, how could I contribute to Optimism <laughs> Vaccine? And you can contribute... Uh, in a couple of ways, you know, you could find us on Patreon. We, we are there. We just put out our, our very first patron exclusive episode on uh, 
some uh, some earnest wrap up. We covered a, a fantastic film such as Doctor Otto and the Riddle of the Gloom Beam, uh, and you can access that for simply three dollars a month. And uh, you know, if you had a couple extra bucks for five bucks a month, you could you could even get a shout out on this very show. And uh, what could be more thrilling than hearing me say your name? Uh, you could ask such uh, good friends of the show as as Dustin and Paula, and and they'll tell you. Nothing more thrilling than what just happened right there. Uh, you know, <laughs> 2020 salvaged. Uh, and if you don't have any money, <laughs> that's understandable, too. You could just go on over to iTunes. We're even going to provide you a link right in the description here. And you could just write a simple review for us. But if you have anything uh, negative to say, uh, that's fine. Just write it in there, but still give us five stars, because that really helps with the old visibility. You know, we're slaves to the algorithm. Uh, do us a favor. Just uh, put five stars. Say what you will, but five stars, great. Uh, beyond that, some of us use social media. I don't know why, uh, but uh, we'll give them the opportunity to talk with you there as well. So, Sean, wh where can the people find you online? Uh, Sean Glennis on Letterboxd. Letterboxd. That's a very interactive forum. Uh, <laughs> Jay, how about you? Where can the people maybe actually speak to you? <laughs> yeah, I'm on all things as uh, at Jake Tropila, J-A-K-E-T-R-O-P-I-L-A. You can read some of my blurbs and reviews on Letterboxd, or you can uh, tweet at me on Twitter. I'll uh, respond, if you're nice. There you go. And you know who else is on Twitter? Uh, not me, but uh, Optimism Vaccine as a whole. You can find us at Optimism Vaccine. You may or may not also be talking to Jake when you tweet at that, but uh, uh, don't tell anyone. I think that's about it, guys. Uh, tune in next time, and you're going to hear more Sergio. We've got a guest for next episode talking about yep. Sergio, and then we have uh, Stuart Gordon for the next two episodes. Uh, we're celebrating uh, the Is recently departed the Stuart Gordon. Oh, Jesus. Uh, Jake, last word is yours. And you will face the sea of darkness and all therein that shall be explored. Very enthusiastic to start and end, guys. We killed it. We killed it. Mm -hmm.